वेलकम टू द वॉट इन फिनटेक पॉडकास्ट आई एम यर होस्ट तरंग गुप्ता एंड आर गेस्ट टूडे इज एंड्रू जेमिसन द सीईओ एंड को फाउंडर ऑफ एक्सटेंड प्राय टू एक्सटेंड एंड्रू वॉज द हेड ऑफ बी टू बी कॉपरेट पेमेंट प्रोडक्ट एट अमेरिकन एक्सप्रेस विद मैंडेट टू ड्राइव डिजिटल पेमेंट इनोवेशन एंड अडोप्शन ओवर द कोर्स ऑफ सिक्स ईयर्स ही डबल बी टू बी पेमेंट वॉल्यूम्स बाई लॉन्चिंग एंड स्केलिंग न्यू कैपेबिलिटीज एंड प्लेटफॉर्म्स Before starting at American Express, Andrew had spent eight years in managing global SAP deployments for large multinational corporations. Join me as we explore why Andrew chose to start a venture after spending almost two decades in the industry, how Extend is navigating the tricky small and medium business segment, what Andrew looks for in potential investors, how Extend came to partner with an NFL team, and much more. Hope you enjoy the show. Hey Andrew, good morning. Thank you so much for being here. Good morning, Tarang. Thank you for having me on the podcast. So, where are you dialing in from? So, I'm actually dialing in from Old Greenwich, Connecticut. Uh, I'm a recent resident up here since two months ago. So, uh, as as many things, I feel I'm a contrarian. Uh, most people left during COVID. I feel I I left after the the, the big wave of COVID uh, had happened. So, yeah. So now with a family of uh, an 11 year old and seven year old, uh, decided it was time time to find more space. Awesome. All right. So let's jump into the questions. For our listeners who may not know about you, could you provide a overview of your career to date and how you got involved in fintech? Yeah, absolutely. So look, I um, started off my career uh, straight out of college. Uh, I had a choice actually at the time to either go and join a strategic consultancy uh, called BCG or um, or to go into what was deemed, I guess, a little bit more of a fintech world at the time. Although looking back, like that's enterprise tech. Uh, and that's really to be a consultant focused around SAP and the deployment of of that technology. And in some degrees, I was I was employee number fifty two in this in this consultancy, and that's the path I chose. Right, was to go down down there. Largely because my father said to me, like, why on earth are you going to be a strategic consultant at the ripe old age of twenty three when you've done nothing? Uh, and I thought he had a fairly valid point. What I realized afterwards, actually, the whole point of going into strategic consulting is to learn frameworks and how to think about things. But that's that's benefit of hindsight. Um, but what I learned and said was a whole host of practical skills, right? I specifically focused on finance, so I really got to understand right the mechanics of payments and what companies had to do in order to get payments out the door. And that's really what I did for the first ten years of my career. I then went to INSEAD in France, uh, where I get got my MBA, and then wanted to change careers. And that was the whole reason for going to to business school, and found myself at American Express, which was making this interesting transition. In the commercial card space, anyway, of saying, "Look, we we're the predominant provider of, of credit cards and in, into in, businesses, but we need to continue to grow. And for them to grow was to say, well, we need to start looking at other expenses beyond travel. And that's where my SAP experience kind of was it was a real fit. And that was my, to some extent, my unfair advantage. Right as I grew my career there, as I was one of the few people that had actually come from the client side uh, and specifically seen." The mechanics of payments from the client's lens, and that really helped me, right? Think about how to design and develop new products and platforms, which is what I did for for the best part of twelve years at American Express. And you know, how did I get here? Look, for me, it was a it was a personal uh, event that triggered sort of the the change of careers parts. And that's you know, my mother had been living with cancer for thirty five years, and uh, it was that time when when we knew the journey was coming to an end, and, and so I left Amex to go and spend a bit more time in Europe. I'd moved to the US back in two thousand and six, uh, and and really grew up in France and, and in England. And for me, it was just it was time to take a, a sabbatical, to, so to speak, with uh, 
with one of my kids and spend a bit more time over there. So I did that. Um, an unexpected benefit came out of that, which was just the ability and the time to think, right? Think about what it is you purposefully want to do uh, as a career. Uh, even though I wasn't young at the time, <laughs> I was already well into my 40s. Um, but really sort of narrowed down kind of the fields I wanted to do. And, and what I'd settled in very quickly was my passion was in building, in building uh, solutions for customers and, and really trying to understand what the, what the root cause of problems were and trying to think of how you simplify things, how you change things around, how you connect wires that people maybe not even thought about. And that's, that's really what, what drove and, and motivated me. And, and I'd been very lucky inside of Amex in that I'd been given that opportunity in a very safe environment. Uh, we built a payment processing engine that went from zero to 20 billion in processing a volume over the course of really five, six years. But I'd done it in an environment where obviously Amex has a lot of money. And so it was a very safe environment for me to do it in. And, and this time I just decided it was time for me to try and step out and solve a problem I identified in the marketplace, but to do it under my own steam, really under my own rules, I guess. And so, so that was the beginning of the journey. Was it scary to go from 12 years at Amex and that big organization settled framework of how things work to a startup? Look, you, you make choices in life. And so, so financially, obviously, you know, pretty scary. There's a reason why many people at the, at the, the ripe old age of 40 are not stepping out, right, to go into a startup. Now, I had, again, an, a huge benefit um, in that I had a very supportive wife whose career was, was really on a, on a huge upward trajectory, and I guess that that was also a deciding factor in enabling me to do that. Now, she's a CFO, right? So she, she's got a pretty keen eye on, on, on the purse. And so she was very clear, like, you can do this, but, but you're going to set yourself milestones, right? You've got to set yourself real goalposts because, you know, these are typically the, the highest earning years of your career. So she was keen for me not to miss out on on that too and sort of kept me on, on the pre good and, and, and honest guardrails in terms of what we needed to achieve. So that was another great motivator. But again, did, did I feel that I had to make sacrifices to do this? Yeah, absolutely. But it wasn't like my family was going to go hungry, my kids were not going to go to school, right? And, and so I have huge appreciation for, for people who do this uh, and take some, some even greater risks than that. Talking about your startup, can you talk to me a, a little bit about what Extend does, what services it offers? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so look, I'd, I've been in and around the industry for, for well over 20 years. Uh, and I guess I'd, I'd taken my cues from what I'd seen that had happened in, inside of the world of SAP. I joined SAP in, in, in that world around 1994. And, and SAP back in those days was operating around green screens, right? So it was like very tech-heavy, tech-centric consultancy. And but very quickly, by 96, they'd moved to this graphic you know, user interface, and, and it was really operated by Windows over the front of it. And so now you had a mouse, now you could click on a menu, and you could like navigate, as opposed to having to know like four-letter codes or digit codes to take you from one screen to the next. Uh, and the irony for me was, as I left American Express in the back end of 2015, I realized that the preeminent processor for all the issuers, which is a company called Tesis, they were still operating on green screens. And so for me, it was like, well, that's going to change. That has to change. And then I looked at that in the context of other emerging players, right? We saw Brex emerge. We saw then Divi emerge. And, and since then, it's, it's Ramp, it's Spendes, it's Plios. All these companies have emerged realistically to try and change the journey for a very particular segment, right? Consumers were well taken care of. Big enterprise and corporates were well taken care of with these complex, complex solutions. But that middle market was very much like the middle child. 
and had received, you know, less love or perceived to receive le- less love than the younger one or the older one. And, and so there was a hole in the market. And so what I saw is all these companies going headlong saying, I need to redo this from scratch. And I was like, but do you really need to, to burn down Rome in order to sort of reinvent it? And I think the answer was clearly no, right? Rome exists with a combination of old and new. And the secret to me was, right, well, how, how do I create something which customers can readily adopt without having to go and change banks? Because it's, it's hard enough as a consumer to change banks. It's really hard for a company to change banks. And, and, and there's really little appetite. I mean, I've moved now from the UK to the US, as, as, as I mentioned, I think 16 years ago. And I'm still with the bank that I was with in the UK, right? Would I get better services with a bank, the local bank here? Probably. But there isn't really that much need to, to change because guess what? Everything happens digitally. And so for me, the arc of where we were trying to take this was to say, hey, if I can wrap my technology in and around all of the core processing capabilities of these banks and therefore not force these customers, these millions of customers, cardholders, from having to change relationships and yet still give them access to modern APIs and modern user experiences, then we've succeeded in the mission. And so that's really the, the journey that we went on is let's enable these capabilities as features of existing products that people have in their, in their hands versus forcing them to go and sign up for something net new and re-implement and go through all this change that, frankly, only gives them a marginal improvement relative to, to what they have. Diving deeper into Extend's business model, how do you earn revenue? Who are your main customers or users? And do you have any key competitors? Yeah, so, so who, is, who pays the bills? It's, it's the banks, right? Those are, they are my customers because we sell our, our digital uh, platform that overlays, right? There are other assets. So they essentially pay us uh, on, on interchange, right? And what I mean by interchange is they pay us a fraction of the fees that they earn from merchants who accept credit cards. That's how we earn, earn our revenues. Uh, and as we continue to grow and we start to build more software components that will help the companies that these banks are serving with credit cards, such as building out expense management features and capability, right? Then we'll, we'll sort of leap over into also a software business where if I'm helping you as an accountant to close your month-end books faster, then there's a good reason that I would charge you also for those as services. And that's the journey that, that we're on now, and, and we'll get there towards the end of next year in terms of you know, overlaying services to corporate customers and see how we can continue to help them in a, in a financial journey. How did you convince Extend's first partner bank to come on board? What was that pitch like? Um, I think like everything in industry, right? It's a lot to do with relations. Um, you know, in my case, I'd, I'd been with Amex for the best part of, of uh, 12 years. And, and look, one of the things that's out there is, is Amex has long been a gold standard in credit cards simply because that's their business that they've, you know, they've changed and evolved a little bit now into sort of doing lending. But if you think about the genesis of all of this, they were just focused on credit cards and singularly focused on providing really an excellent customer experience. And so what's happened, though, over the course of the last 15, 20 years is, is the banks have seen the success that American Express had, and they've hired a lot of executives from American Express. And so that network became pretty powerful. Uh, and I think the benefit of having been there and having delivered results is, is people, we, we were a known entity. And frankly, we, um, we were a trusted entity. And so the, the very first partner where we produced a virtual card actually was with Silicon Valley Bank. 
Uh, and, and very quickly thereafter, we, we did the same with, with American Express and, and glad to say that we now have eight banks that we're operating with. Uh, and, and that should be growing to somewhere in the region of 12 uh, by the end of the year. And, but a lot of it was, was really linked on, on trust and really about convincing them that they didn't need to do a huge technology uplift. In fact, they had to do zero technology work in order to be able to embed our solution, right? That was a key secret to what we were trying to do was do not ask banks to do any technology work because then you'll join a long list of things that they need to finance and they have no resources and they haven't got the money to, to go and partner with a company the size of Extend for sure. And that's, that was really our, our ability to, to go from wireframes uh, and an MVP to a truly working solution. And that's what we took to our investors back in 2017, right? We were able to issue, we would have issued you a virtual card and said, hey, look, go and purchase something. And lo and behold, the, the transaction went through successfully. And they were like, wow, that, that was seamless. You gave me access to a credit card in, in minutes. And I was able to go and spend uh, very easily on the back of receiving that card. Talking about partnerships, Extend recently partnered with the Jacksonville Jaguars. Talk to me how a fintech startup and an NFL team come together. Like, how does that happen? Again, it's 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 through relationships, right? We we were working with uh, with Regions Bank in terms of how how we could actually help them bring more fintechs into their own ecosystem around embedded payments, uh, and then we started having uh, discussions with with FIS, and, and actually they uh, were already partnered up um, with the Jacksonville Jaguars. The Jacksonville Jacksonville Jaguars on their side were really looking for an efficient solution to help them with making purchases. They only had a couple of credit cards, right, in their business. Uh, but suddenly they were like, well, we have to buy equipment. We have to do things with, right, the, the, the different installations. Uh, they had to have the teams travel. And so they went from having two credit cards to having well over 150 cards, right, floating across their organization, but floating in a really controlled manner, right? You could only spend so much over a period of time, and every transaction was tagged, right, with what the activity was. And so there was complete transparency. And so for a team uh, like the Jacksonville Jaguars, it typically, you know, from a finance perspective, has a pretty small back office, right? It's, it's their ability to, to suddenly be able to control things in real time and respond in real time uh, and actually be a better partner, right, to the actual team that they support. And so that's, that's really how this came about was, was them, you know, seeing that we were going to be able to just frankly improve right the back office uh, and how they reported on things and, and the accessibility they, they gave to people to just be able to do their jobs. Another thing I'm curious about is that historically the small and medium business segment has been difficult for fintech startups to break into. How is Extend's approach different and what is that makes you special? So I, the way I look at, at sort of that middle market segment is the key has always been to think about how you make access frictionless. And, and the reason why it's hard is because it's a huge population, right? The, 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 what's hard to do with a big company right, is to get through the bureaucracy of, of the process. What's hard to do at scale, though, is, is that frictionless onboarding. And, and it took me a couple of years, frankly, in, in the process to realize that the secret sauce that fintechs often bring is actually removing friction from adopting a service, right? They, that's, that's a nut that they crack, and they do it extremely efficiently. And, uh, and that's one of the big things that, that we hit on was, what if I could enable what had until now been a product only reserved for the biggest companies? What if I could make the concept of digital credit cards, right, 
a feature of every walking piece of plastic that's already in circulation. And all you need is either a web browser or a phone. That's all you need to activate in under five minutes. And then thereafter, you can issue one, ten, or thousands of, of digital credit cards in a matter of minutes because you're either doing it through our applications or you're tapping into the APIs that power these applications. And so that, if you think of, of in a traditional context, of a bank typically would have had to go and implement that product with every client, which means that they themselves have to prioritize who they go and serve. And so they serve big clients, not small clients. But now you take away that constraint and say, no, 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 no. Anyone who has a card on a naval bank can access this in under five minutes. Then you start saying, well, now I can actually start serving that portion of the market that, frankly, as I mentioned, that middle child who just, frankly, wasn't getting the services that they needed, right? They were too complicated for consumer, but really not complex enough, right? Because they're not, they're not Exxon. They're not, you know, Siemens. They're not just a giant multinational, but they still could have, you know, anywhere from 30 to 500 employees, and they still needed access to these sophisticated tools. They were just never given an opportunity to get that. Another thing I want to talk to you about is that recently the U.S. fintech market has been through a bit of a rough patch. Has that affected extends growth plans in any way, or what is the strategy to navigate these choppy waters? Look, I think that the choppy waters um, doesn't change the mission in terms of serving the middle market. It doesn't change the mission in terms of creating great accessibility, right, to financial tools. And so the the economic downturn, in a way, makes us more critical, right, because we are able to provide the controls that these small businesses need, right, as and when they think about spending. Uh, and provide right, the right level of insights. The impact that it has had, I think, is, is really on the financing side of the equation. Right? You, you suddenly had these tiny companies with a vision. Uh, and I think one of my investors put it really well recently, which is like, you know, all the way through really for the last seven, eight, nine years, like the vision counted for 80% of whether they're going to fund you or not. Right? There was 20% focus on the operating metrics. And it was like, if you had users, you'll find a way to modify them over time. Just keep bringing me users. Um, and then I'd say on the fintech side, it went to one step further, which was, you know, what was your revenue looking like and was it growing fast enough? And then was, were they understanding the cost of acquiring customers, the cost of running the business? And no, they were just looking at revenue. As long as revenue grew, it didn't care about your cost base. So now that capital isn't free anymore because interest rates are, are skyrocketing uh, and everyone's taking heed, right? I think it's, it's a great for us, it's a great time. I don't think we overshot ourselves either in the amount of money we raised or in terms of our valuation. But companies that suddenly shot up from being worth $100 million to $8 billion in the space of you know, 12 months, there's just not a realistic cycle of growth. And so to some extent, right, those companies have outgrown themselves. And I think it's true of all these companies, you know, even these really you know, big companies who just they made so much money and money was so cheap that frankly, they just grew fat, right? And, and now it's like, well, we have to trim it all back. So um, I actually think this economic cycle is, is going to be a great thing because usually through these cycles, right, you see champions starting to emerge and things that on the surface look great, but, but really weren't quickly get found out. Uh, and so, so I think this cycle will, will create, a lot, it'll create a lot of M&A activity, uh, as, as these different concepts that maybe don't fly on their own get subsumed into other businesses. So, so I think, frankly, I think it's, it's a good time, right? We're going to see a, a good cleaning of house. Since you touched upon valuations and funding, I would love to get your 
uh, input on how does Extend evaluate potential investors. It is backed by some prominent names like the Capital Group and Point72 Ventures, right? But what is that you look for in a potential investor and say, hey, this is the kind of person I want to be in a partnership with? Well, I think the first thing you, you need to remember is it's not just about the money, right? And at the time, I think money was a bit of a commodity. Um, and so uh, some, some people that couldn't stop the fixation around the money. So whoever came with the best pitch, that's who I took. And I think, you know, having been around sort of the, the, the boardroom discussions and, and executive discussions, right, in and out of, of, of Amex and other companies, it's like you start to realize it's not in good times that you need to think about who's around the table. It's about what happens in bad times. And, and my father was an entrepreneur in a very different space, right? He was in shop fitting equipment, right? Selling shelving into, into French supermarkets and, and small grocery stores. Um, and he always said, right, when, when push comes to shove, you need to know who's got your back in an economic downturn. And so a lot of the probing that happens, uh, certainly I feel when, when I'm looking for a board member is I want someone who is, is going to be level-headed, right, through good and bad, and is really willing to lean into the business and to understand the business and, and keep me honest at the same time, right, relative to the decisions we make, the actions we take. Uh, and that's, that's been a huge area of focus for me as, as we thought about who we bring around the, the board table. And I'm glad to say over the last six years, we've just had phenomenal relationships up and down, right, whether it's to do with, with P.72 who joined at the earliest stage in FinTech Collective and, and then subsequently with March Capital and B Capital. It's really been, it's been great uh, to have that level of support. Uh, and then some of the operational experience of, of others, like Reciprocal Ventures and, and, and others who've, who've really joined our table. So, no, that's, that's, that to me is always going to be critical is, is making sure that, that we have the right mindset around the table. I know this is going a bit deeper, but do you think that having a smaller fund backing your venture versus having bigger funds backing your venture makes a difference in the kind of expectations they have out of your out of your company? Uh, absolutely, right? At the end of the day, you have to think smaller funds, right, initially, right, you represent just a bigger piece of their capital, so they, they're going to lean in more, right? They're fully vested. Um, the reality is, as you start going into bigger funds, right, if your investment is small, right, and, and then you're not getting subsequent rounds, then you rapidly become an irrelevant part of their portfolio. Uh, the other thing with bigger funds, right, is you need to show promise of, of multiple, uh, multiple growth cycles in there because what is $20 million for a small fund is a rounding error in a big fund. And, you know, you've seen the news just as much as I have, right? These funds are now running in the billions of dollars. So if I take your... 10 million and make it 20 million, right? And you're a massive billion dollar fund. No, no, no. They're looking at it saying, I need that 10 to turn into 200 because now you're, you're a meaningful investment to, to me. And so having the right investors at the right stage is also so critical as you think about your startup, right? Having a hedge fund or a crossover fund coming in too early, frankly, is, you know, as much as they come in with big checks, they're not going to show you the right amount of, of attention necessarily relative to what you need at the stage of growth that you're at. Or they'll put metrics in front of you that frankly are not appropriate for the stage of, of, of startup you're at. And talking about scaling up, right? One aspect is funding. The other aspect is the people. So my next question is, is extend hiring? If yes, what is that you look for in potential colleagues? So we are absolutely hiring. It's kind of been interesting uh, in that you know, we raised our, our 40 million Series B last year and, and we, funny enough, did not do a lot of hiring. 
uh, in the back end of, of last year. And that was partly because when I looked at, at the at some of the prices of, of candidates that were coming through the door, I was like, yeah, I can't build a sustainable business. If I'm paying that amount for someone with two years of experience, this is not sustainable over time. And so we chose to sit somewhat on the sidelines. And then obviously the, the public markets changed in December and January timeframe. The private markets kind of changed, I'd say, more in that sort of May-June timeframe. And, and so actually there's just been a lot of talent uh, appearing on the market with what I would call much more realic, realistic expectations. Um, and so now we've, we've put the foot to the gas. In fact, we've, we've pretty much doubled the size of the company. Um, we've had uh, over 40 people, I would say, in the last year. Uh, we're 87, I think, at the last count. Uh, we, we, we're on plan to be just shy of 100 before the end of the year. So to your question, are we hiring? Absolutely. Um, and then, you know, what is it we look for in candidates? Um, look, we're looking for people who are energized by by the journey. And so I, a lot of people say, well, you can't hire people from large companies. They're not, they're not entrepreneurial. I, you know, at the end of the day, I also have to remember that I serve some of the biggest financial institutions in the world. And so I do need people who have a certain degree of experience, a certain degree of gravitas, understand that compliance is there for a reason and can't be circumnavigated, right? But most, uh, for, you know, mostly, you know, then you go down and say, okay, what's the skill sets and the attributes? But I, I always look for people who are curious, right? Who ask a, a, a lot of a lot of questions, and especially when you don't come from the industry, sometimes your questions come a bit left field, and, and that's fine uh, because I actually think bringing people who don't come from the industry is often as valuable, or is sometimes more valuable because you get that external perspective. I, I do also look for people who are action orientated. But, but action-orientated in such a way that they're also, they show tremendous accountability in what they've done for. Uh, I don't mind people making mistakes, frankly. It's, it's part and parcel of, of any career. You're going to make mistakes. But it's like, are you accountable to those mistakes? Uh, are, are you on this continuous journey, right, to improve and to lean in uh, and to really show that, yeah, that's, that's a mistake, but, hey, these are the five things we've learned, and we're going to wrap that now into our process, and, and we'll, we'll, we won't replicate those mistakes going forward. So... I think all of those things are key. Uh, I think the other thing I look for is is collaboration, right? I, sometimes having sort of individual loan sharks, whilst it's great because they're prolific, you do need collaboration because the collective, as a general rule, can can really push the thinking, uh, and it can push the thinking if you're open, right, to people uh, truly being and showing their their own individual selves. And that's, that's an interesting part, right? Of today's culture as well is that the younger generations are very keen for their values to be represented inside of a company and for their voices to be heard. And I think in many prior generations, like, no, 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 that's not how you learn. You tell, you know, you do what I, what I say, we've just entered this great environment where I think now people have a voice at the table and, and I'm always trying to make sure people have that voice at the table, that people discuss things at the table and then happen afterwards. And then, you know, because we spend an awful lot of time working together, I, I try and make sure that there's a sense of humor somewhere in there because, uh, because you know what, it's, it's so much more fun to work with people who, who can look at things uh, and, and laugh uh, and laugh in hindsight. Some, some of the strange things that happen in the industry that we live in. Switching up the gears for a bit and talking about the industry overall, I would love to get a take on, you know, what do you think are some trends in the fintech industry that are really going to shape its growth in the next five years? So I think, um, and, and I just saw a study actually by, by Bain um, that talks about embedded payments. Uh, you know, I think, 
you know, payment is one part of a, of a broader process, of a broader service. And in some ways, right, companies like Uber kind of almost made you forget that you were paying for a service because all you really wanted to do was just get a car and you wanted to turn up when you wanted it and you didn't want to have to move to find it and just, and there it was. And people sort of failed to appreciate that you then walked straight out of the car and you went on to do whatever you needed to do to the point where the number of times I've walked out of a yellow taxi without actually paying and sort of realized, you know, the driver's like shouting out the window, hey, you need to pay. And you'll be like, I'm so sorry, completely forgotten that, that I needed to, to actually insert my credit card into this, into this uh, service. And obviously that's changed because they've added their own way now for you to be able to pair up, you know, your, your apps and, and, and settle directly. Um, so it's been a tremendously, it's been a great influence seeing these disruptors coming and changing the industry. But I think, you know, embedded payments in, in a service, we're starting to see more and more of it. And I think it's, a lot of it's been facilitated, frankly, because of APIs, right? What you have is these bigger platform providers, these systems of record across different industries um, have realized that they can't compete on every level. And so what they've really done is to say, well, how can I unbundle my services, right, into APIs? And we're seeing a real acceleration across all industries, right, of these software providers opening up APIs so that people can rewire and, and deliver net new services out on the other side. So I think the, the API piece of things is, is fascinating in terms of where that's going to take us, right, how people will then bundle services, whether it's to do with payments or not is almost neither here nor there. But, but how, you know, you almost leave it to, to the intellectual curiosity of individuals are like, what if... I was to take this service and mix it with that service and do something else. And that is something that, that people are looking for. And, and that's why I'm really interested is to see like what, what ideas people come up with. And, and, you know, again, do they hold traction as the addressable market, you know, significant enough, but I think we're going to see even more happening in that space. I think the estimate said it was going to go from 2.6 to, to 7 billion in the next uh, four years. So again, on the payment side alone, right? But then you start thinking about commerce in general, we're going to see some pretty interesting things. For the last segment, what I'd like to do is have a round of rapid fire questions to introduce you more as a person, not just an entrepreneur. My first question for you is, what is a fun fact about you that most people don't know? Fun fact about me is, despite the fact that I'm 50 years old, I, I grab my electric scooter here in Connecticut, ride it to the train station, take my electric scooter on the train into Grand Central, and then take my life in my own hands and, and, and go down uh, Lexington Avenue to our offices on 23rd. So I enjoy, right. Trying to get as much efficiency out of the system as possible. So I don't have to like, you know, waste time waiting for subways and, and doing these different things. So look, I've, I've sort of embraced sort of uh, more modern forms of, of transportation. Um, and to some extent, right. It's, it's, it's funny turning up on the train there on stairs at you as you sit there and you collapse down your electric scooter um, so that would certainly be one, one interesting fun fact. I think another one might be the fact that I've been married three times to the same woman. And that's uh, because we come from different cultures. Uh, and as a result, right, we, we got married three, three times to satisfy right, all, the, all the different uh, parties in, in the equation. I love that. One question, though. Do you wear a suit when you drive the electric scooter? So this week I wore a jacket for the first time uh, in my electric scooter. Uh, and I, I must admit, it felt kind of weird. Uh, <laughs> but again, it was like, actually, no, this actually works, right? It's like, it's, again, trying to be a little bit contrarian. Uh, so I'm, I've got a few uh, events coming up uh, shortly. And so uh, not only have I worn a jacket, I also have taken it into a restaurant. I took the electric scooter into two restaurants recently. 
which I thought was going to be an interesting journey. Uh, in, in one case, I did actually get one of those big bags that you can shove it in and, and take in. I just felt sorry for the person at the front desk when I said, do you mind putting this piece of luggage around the back, realizing that it weighs about 30 pounds and the poor people <laughs> sitting there are like losing their arms, uh, shoveling it to the back. But, uh, but yes. You have spent a fair bit of time in the US and you have spent a fair bit of time in Europe. Which do you prefer and why? So different, uh, different uh, things, right, um, attract me to different regions. Um, you know, I grew up uh, certainly with, with a lot of different cultures in my family. My father's Australian, my mother's Swedish. Uh, I was born in England, but by the time I was one, I was living in France. And what I love about Europe is the seamless way in which you navigate from country to country and, and you, really, you really transform from one language to the next. And I, and I love that variability, both in culture, in food, and so I've, I've always enjoyed that uh, aspect of things. That being said, I would never have started a business in Europe, right? Just, it just would never have even entered my mind because the, the system's not designed, I feel, in such a way that it's easy. America has it's just it's this amazing, you know, I still believe it's a land of opportunity because it has this amazing vision around failure, right? Failure is almost terminal, I feel, in Europe, whereas failure in the US is, is a rite of passage. It's almost like not about failing, it's about Great. So how quickly did you get up? How quickly did you bounce on to the next thing? And America has this tremendous appetite for trying stuff. Some things, frankly, are stupid, but a whole <laughs> host of innovations just emerge on the back of people just trying. And so I've, I've really enjoyed that aspect of things here is that openness. And, and frankly, just the, the curiosity that, that comes out of it is, is really, really impressive. And so I've, I've certainly enjoyed that. And I've enjoyed a lot of the national parks in, in America as well, they are just frankly stunning. So now that Extend has reached the scale that it has, do you think Europe has become an easier market for you now? Uh, I, think, I think so. In fact, we will be headed there next year. But I've always been of the opinion, based on the, on the infrastructure we deliver, that we would have issuers take us there. Rather than sort of playing the role of sort of land and expand, you know, given the fact that the US is such a great opportunity in its own right, uh, our view was always going to be, we'll have banks pull us in over there. And so that's precisely what's happening. Uh, we'll be launching uh, before the end of this year in Canada, uh, which is tremendously exciting. Uh, and then we'll be launching in the UK in Q1 of next year. Uh, and from there, expanding into continental Europe. So, so yes, it's world dominance is upon us. Congratulations. That sounds so exciting. And probably a stressful time as well. Yeah, look, it is. It's It's... One thing you can never take for granted is, is you're asking, you know, people to take a risk, right? To some degree, you're asking your employees to come and leave these big companies to come and join you on a journey. And so really, really important to, to build that trusted relationship, not just with the companies that you partner with, but obviously with the employees. Um, but yeah, so every time you cross into a new market, you cross into new time zones. And so your stress levels extend a couple of hours deeper into the night uh, or into the morning. Um, but look, it's, it's exciting. Uh, and that's, that I think is why it's, it's important to have a degree of maturity of the folks that you surround yourself with. How did you meet your co-founders and what is that made you decide that, Hey, these are the people I want to start this venture with. So, um, so I knew both of them pretty well. Um, as Danny was, was one of my uh, wife's oldest friends, uh, post-college. Um, and I got to meet Danny when my wife and I met at INSEAD and he came traveling with us to, uh, to Burma. Um, so I got, I got him to meet him in, in shorts and a t-shirt and, and traveling around. But then I also had, had uh, frankly, the, the opportunity to work with him. I brought him in uh, and he'd done a lot of sort of like high, 
high net worth sort of applications for for companies like Tiffany's, right? Their Ring Finder and and then had a really design centric view. And I brought him into a couple of projects at Amex because I wanted to sort of bring that that user centric view of consumers and say like, okay, enough of these enterprise experiences which are so clunky. And so I actually had the, had the joy of actually seeing him operate. Um, and, and just saw how talented he was. And look, we were great friends already at this particular stage. And it was one fateful day at a barbecue. And so I started laying out, what if we did this and that? And I was thinking this, and he said, like, why don't we do this together? And I was kind of like, the light bulb went off. It's like, you're, you're tech, I'm fin, fintech, we're good. And so and so that was the, the, the beginning of it. And then Guillaume and I had worked at Amex. He was also there, fun enough, for 12 years, but we only overlapped for the last four. And so it's great having someone who's sort of, has a sort of vision around a product and, and has a product centric view of, of the world. It's great having a technical mind around there and, and someone who can focus on biz there. But it's like all of this only works if you can actually operationalize things, if you can deliver. Uh, and we were incredibly lucky uh, in that Guillaume fell into our laps and that he had just left Amex and was really looking for another opportunity. And I started laying out what we were doing. And before you knew it, he was building a deck, a strategy deck for us. And, and I think, he was a bit worried because, you know, he told his wife he was looking for a job. But really, he was like, all I really wanted to do was work on this particular project. And luckily, we, we got some funding and, and uh, the rest is history. But that's how the three of us got together. And, and I know a lot of investors are not particularly keen when they see three founders. And usually, it's because it's three founders who come from marketing, three founders who come from sales, right? Here, it's just a case of three of us have so little overlap in skills. And, and for me, I'm grateful in that, you know, how do I sleep well at night? I know I share the stress with two other people and that in itself, right, is a huge relief. And I have incredible respect for people who start companies on their own because it is a stressful journey. And so, uh, so I'm lucky, right? I, I consider them both friends uh, before I even consider them to be, to be colleagues and our families have gotten to be actually, have actually gotten to be pretty close as well. So that just takes a lot of, of the emotion out of what we do and, and actually being three is a great number because you know what there's you can break a tie anytime and the reality is you can always go back if you made a mistake and then, then we go back but but in the meantime we keep charging ahead and i consider both uh both uh Guillaume, who was at mit and danny who was at stanford to be exponentially sharper than me so i'm surrounded by, by smart people imagine you have a time machine i can you can go back in time what advice would you give a let's say 25 year old Andrew? uh so one of the things I would say, and my wife and I talk about this often, like as we, you know, as our children grow up, like how should we think about, you know, trying to, to get them into workforce, even though they're seven, eight years away from, from really being there. But for me, it's about making sure you learn a core skill set out of your first job, right? And I think the benefit of going into consultancy was you kind of really learned about process, right? And I think people who go into banking, they learn all about modeling and whatever the skill you learn, right? I don't care what it is. If it's accounting, you learn about accounting principles. If it's about engineering, you learn about some of those core, core skills. And then I would say, don't be afraid, right? To, to, to jump from, you know, once you've learned your core for three years, right? Learn a couple of other cores and, and again, be disciplined around what it is you're learning. Don't be afraid to enter things that, that you maybe don't fully understand, because the important thing in many of these first jobs is just understanding what is it you like and what is it that you don't like. And one thing I can tell you is if you end up being fortunate enough to find the, the, the vein where you really have, have latched onto something that, that you're passionate about, your, your output just explodes relative to being stuck in, in, a, in a role that frankly doesn't, 
necessarily interest you. And sometimes we get a little bit stuck in a, in a, in a grain. And I look back in my consultancy days, right? I spent 10 years there. I, I look back and say, I should have changed, right? Three years in, and I should have changed probably one more time after that because I would have experimented into different things. And I think I would have continued to learn. And the benefit of joining a small company for me was I got to do things that I would never have done in a big company, right? Conversely, though, if you join a big company, you're fortunate that you typically learn about here's the steps and a process that you should follow. So there's pros and cons and experimenting with both early in your career is just, it's just a great thing to do, right? The question is like, what cycle do you do? And then do you do you know, small first and large third second? It doesn't really matter. The real, the real thing for me is like, are you continuing learning and are you being pushed to learn as well? And I think that those are important things. Our final question, what does success look like for you and for extent? Where do you see yourself 10 years from now? Uh, 10 years from now, hopefully retired. Um, <laughs> uh, so, uh, look, it's, you know, I've always seen this, this as a journey, as, as I mentioned before, my father was an entrepreneur and, it, and it's a journey. And I think it's all about earning rites of passage. And so what, you know, when I see, you know, where would I hope to be 10 years from now? Um, the reality is, is you always, as you start a business, got to have a path to profitability. And so for me, it's like, you know, if I look at it 10 years from now, you know, we're a profitable business that stands on its own. At the end of the day, venture money is is really just a drug, right? You've got to wean yourself off it at some point because you've got to be a standalone business. Uh, and so for me, it's 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 being a standalone business that is a profitable business that is not only answering the, the needs of, of financial services uh, and institutions, but most importantly, right, how much are we delivering for these corporate customers, right? How much are we making if you're know, creating efficiencies in, in, in daily lives. And, and I would love to see us leap into the consumer world as well, right? Because I see the same challenges exist there. And, and that would be interesting because, you know, you start thinking of cross-border payments and specifically, you know, family members repatriating funds, you know, internationally. Well, what if you could fractionalize your existing credit card and let them spend on that without having to incur these, these crazy FX fees that, that you incur and having to move money. So I can see loads of applications here where from one central pool of funds, you can create controlled access, right, to anyone, any place, any time, and therefore creating right, that, that, that instant accessibility, but at the same time, total transparency. Uh, I think, I, think um, I, I remember hearing when I was at a MasterCard conference that, you know, nothing good comes from cash. And, and I sort of generally understand that, right? Sort of like, so how do you create, right, situations where anyone has access uh, to me uh, really becomes, becomes a sort of uh, a really important goal for us to continue to chase. Amazing. On that note, I'll let you get back to work. But thank you so much for being on the podcast. No, absolute pleasure. Thank you. I've enjoyed the questions and, and very much look forward to staying in touch. you for listening to today's episode of the what in fintech podcast if you like the show then please show us some love on social media or consider leaving a review it means a lot to us and helps spread the word to more listeners if you want more content from our fintech community please subscribe to our podcast and find us on linkedin instagram twitter and medium at what in fintech there you will find interviews articles videos and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry as always, special thanks to our editor, Rafael Osteria. Signing off until next time, I'm your host, Tarang Gupta.